0: Isaiah chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, this is God's word. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims, each one had six wings, with twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. And the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphims to me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth, and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin is purged. Also I heard a voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I, send me. Why do God's people often seem to have such a problem drawing near to the Lord? How would the redeemed not find the blessedness in the presence of the Creator of all good? Why would we ever avoid the presence? If we are all honest, that we, we would recognize and admit that there remains in the hearts of each of us some hesitancy. But what is it that causes this reluctance? As we contemplate the presence as it appears in Isaiah, we begin to understand, I think, the source of our hesitancy. We imagine the cost of the Lord's presence. We watch as Isaiah suffers near disintegration before the face of Almighty God. We hear the hiss of the burning coal against his lips. We consider the demands of holiness against our own soul and blanch at the prospect of standing before the glory of His majesty. And we begin to ask ourselves if the blessings of the Lord are worth the cost of being in His presence. In the presence of the Lord, we cannot remain the same. And I believe it's why we often avoid the presence, because we know it will change us and we aren't willing to change. Change scares us because we don't know or don't believe that the change will improve our lives. Yet how faithless should we be to not trust that the good Creator will affect the lives of His people, that they would be anything other than good? Can we not believe that what we lose is indeed defilement, that we might gain joy? These questions challenge us as we contemplate the story before us. As Isaiah stands in the temple, it is a mournful time. And we observe the vision of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, and the work of the Lord. The vision of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, and the work of the Lord. The vision that captures Isaiah's eyes sets the stage for the change the Lord will bring to the prophet's life. It's a vision that encompasses both sites. And sounds. Isaiah begins with a chronological marker in verse 1, in the year that King Uzziah died. From chapter 1, we saw that the ministry of Isaiah ran through the reigns of Uzziah to Hezekiah. At the end of Uzziah's reign, we may suggest the conclusion of the first chapter of Isaiah's ministry. As Uzziah dies, the first part of Isaiah's ministry has come to an end. Uzziah was generally a good king, but he died a leper due to his usurpation of the priestly role. His heresy led to his death. And so it becomes a time of mourning, a time when Isaiah needs reminding of his divine appointment and his duty. The picture of the Lord includes a description of him being high and lifted up. Verse 1 again, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and His train filled the temple. You see, the supremacy of the Lord is emphasized here. The hem of His royal garments is encompassing the temple. Isaiah uses this vision uh, to construct this, uh, this visual imagery of the transcendence of God, that God is so big that only the bottom part of Him is capable, is sufficient to completely surround and encompass the temple. The angelic beings surrounding the presence of God here are described as the seraphs. Literally, this word means the burning ones. Their continual worship and service displays the awesome wonder of the God they serve. Fiery beings alone seem to be able to produce worthy worship. These beings are curiously described, they have six wings, with two they fly, and some commentators take this to mean that they are always ready to do God's bidding. With two wings they cover their faces, even the burning ones, beings possibly made from the purest fire cannot behold the Lord's unmitigated glory, instead they must shield their faces." And with two wings, they cover their feet, and it's a strange uh, occurrence that has led to many different interpretations. Why do the seraphs need to cover their feet? It seems to me that it, this uh, indicates the humility of the seraphs before God, that their feet, probably maybe one of the most unattractive parts of their body, must be covered. They rec- re- they Conceal their ugliness before God. No ugliness can stand, and therefore the feet are covered. By covering their feet, they recognize their own unworthiness before God. Remember in Exodus chapter 3, where Moses, when God tells Moses to take his sandals off because he is standing on holy ground. These seraphs are depictions of what the true worship of God must have. The statement of the seraphs now is heard by Isaiah in chapter 3. And one cried into another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled full of his glory. You have what is known as the hagion the proclamation of the transcendent God. He is holy holy, holy. This superlative is indicated. He is not just holy, he is not just the more holy, he is the most holy. This emphasizes that there is none other holy as God. This idea of holiness representing otherness or separate that there is no one like unto God. There is no one like the Lord. He is completely unique and all of the other gods are mere idols. He's also called the Lord of Hosts, the Lord of Armies. An image that reveals God's character as a commanding king over a multitude that no one can, uh, can number. Not only omnipotent, but one that has legions of his assistance, of his burning ones, to do his bidding. It's a demonstration of strength, superiority, supremacy, and rule and reign. The angels, the seraphs, also claim that the earth is full of His glory. Whereas the holiness of God declares His inward character, His glory displays an outward manifestation that is made manifest to all the world. All that God created reveals His glory. There is no escaping it. The seraphs, the burning one, say of the Lord that is enthroned on high that in every particle of creation his glory is known. And at the vo- voice of the seraphs, the very foundations of the door of the temple shake and move. Verse 4, and the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. The declaration of the nature of God does not proceed without shaking the foundations of creation. Smoke fills the temple as God's presence appears, and this is a familiar reality to Isaiah and its historical context. This temple was filled with smoke when Solomon dedicated it. The the tabernacle was filled with smoke when it was dedicated. That filling of smoke represents the presence of God. The smoke demonstrates two things about the presence of God. It blinds men to remind them that there is no idol that can represent God, that there is no image that can be made to represent God. It also barricades God. It suggests that you cannot approach God simply based upon your whim. That there must be a way that God makes that sinful man can enter into his presence. Purity recognizes the majesty of the holiness of God. One of the elements about our humanity is that it draws us to wonder and majesty. It perhaps comes from our being made in God's image, oriented to our Creator, that we long to feel wonder. We desire the presence of majesty. We enjoy seeing things that are greater than us, unfamiliar and powerful. Whether you get that sense from Everest or the pyramids, from the Grand Canyon or the Panama Canal, from the Great Wall of China or the Taj Mahal, from the Statue of Liberty or Mount Rushmore, our sense of wonder seeks fulfillment. And yet no earthly wonder can match the majesty and the awe that comes from the presence of the Lord. That purity recognizes the majesty of God a purity that the Lord has worked in his people. For it draws us not only to these natural vistas, but to the greater majesty of God's presence. Our purity needs entrance before the face of our Redeemer. It reminds us of the majesty that purifies. We long to enter into the cl- cloud, into the presence of God, and we know that we have that entrance. Through Jesus, through Christ's work, we are able to have the vision of the Lord. But secondly, we see the fear of the Lord. Before the throne of the Lord, God's people lack many options for response. Isaiah sees the contrast between his character and the Lord's holiness, and he acknowledges his sin and his sight of of his nation's sharing in his sin. Before the Lord's awesome throne, Isaiah is forced to his knees in verse 5. Then I said I, woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. Isaiah bewails his condition, woe is me. Woe is me, for I am undone. What does Isaiah mean by being I am undone. Whenever I think of this phrase, unfortunately, my mind triggers back to an event back in March of 20, well 2000 actually, 23 years ago. Uh, I was at a law school and my brother came to visit me and he wanted to go watch a movie and the only movie that we could go and see was uh, the movie, recent movie, Mission to Mars. If you've ever seen that movie, I apologize for ever recommending it. Uh, but we had a great time because we were sitting in the back of the theater. There we were not a lot of people in the theater, to be honest, and we made fun of the movie for the entirety of the time. And the reason that I bring it up is every time I think about I Am Undone, I remember this scene in the movie where this tornado comes out of Mars and, you know, suspend disbelief in scientific ideas, and basically this astronaut gets caught up in this tornado, and as it is twisting him around, all of his limbs fly off which is kind of gruesome. And that's, unfortunately, the idea that always comes to me whenever I think about uh, this phrase. For the idea here that that Isaiah is getting at is a total physical, emotional, and spiritual disintegration. That in the sight of the sovereign Lord, his whole being is falling apart. And Isaiah then explains why he felt such a tearing in his soul. He first declares that he is a man of unclean lips. Imagine what this means to Isaiah. There is a total disintegration of his own identity of himself. He has already spent however long in the reign of Uzziah prophesying and proclaiming the word of the Lord to the people and in the presence of the Lord who he has been serving for however long at this point, he says, I recognize that instead of being of pure lips speaking your word to the people, my lips are unclean. That he has allowed the very instrument that God has set apart for his particular use to become impure. Isaiah also decries his position within Israel. Not only is he a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. In the utter holiness and separateness and purity of God, Isaiah recognizes not only his plight, but also that he is in the company of unholy men. While God has separated himself from impurity, Isaiah sat in the midst of impure men. Isaiah recognizes that he is not distinct from his community, but shares in their same ill. And the reason that he is so undone is not just because he has this character, but because he has this character and his eyes has seen holiness. Holiness. Holy Human purity trembles at the truth of its imperfection. Before God, in the presence of the Holy One, when our eyes meet our Redeemer, we recognize how vile we actually are. And the heart that the Holy Spirit has purified enables us to see our sin and be horror-struck at it. For purity does not tolerate sin in His presence. We also ought not to tolerate sin in our own lives. The presence of the Holy drives us to repentance and obedience. But the presence of the Holy also reminds us that we are not superior to our unbelieving neighbors. Unfortunately, modern stereotypes of religious people portray them as having a sense of superiority over, quote-unquote, ordinary people. But Isaiah's cry joins himself with the sinners around him. As we lament our own sin, we lament the sin in others. It does not create an us-versus-them antagonism, but a shared guilt before the Lord. It generates compassion on those who suffer the corruption of sin and misery in a fallen world. In the presence of God, all the cost of holiness appears in its true form. When we think about what it it will cost us to be pure, what it will cost us to be holy, we begin to recognize what that cost really is. Stripped away from the facade of gold, we see sin for the poison it really is. As one has said, the only thing that we offer unto God is the sin from which we must be set free. The only cost of God's presence is the poison of sin that we have with us. The cost of God's presence is the loss of that which causes death. And so can we really call that a price? We see the vision of the Lord, we see the fear of the Lord. And finally, I want us to see the work of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is not an end in itself, but the beginning of something else. This fear brings you to the end of yourself and encourages reliance upon the Lord's work, for he both cleanses and commissions his prophet. He acts in verse 6, "...then, one, then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar." The seraph takes a coal from the altar, the place of sacrifice, and brings it to the lips of the prophet. The burning one does not merely reach into the altar and take the coal, but uses the the divinely ordained tongs. The purifying coal cleanses the very source of the defilement, verse 7, and laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin is purged. Notice that Isaiah here is merely passive. It is another's sacrifice that is used and applied to Isaiah. The coal touches one of the most sensitive places on the body and purges the sin. Once the coal has touched the lips of the prophet, the seraph Issues the promise of forgiveness. Isaiah's iniquity is removed and his uncleanness has been atoned. But how is that possible? Isaiah has offered no sacrifice. He has not done anything to atone for his sin. There is no covering that Isaiah has made. The sacrifice that is unmentioned of, of the altar, I believe, represents the pardon that Christ accomplished. It is Christ's work that is applied retroactively to the prophet and prepares him for the next and final step. My friend, I must ask, have you experienced this purging? Have you, like Isaiah, recognized the misery of sin and its vileness before the holy God? Have you come undone in his presence? For God knew the state of man. He knew our helplessness. So he sent a deliverer, a sacrifice, a coal from the altar. that Savior is Jesus. Jesus is God-made man. He lived without sin or evil so that he might be the spotless lamb of sacrifice to purge and to cleanse from sin. He died on the cross, condemned for the sins of his people, not for his own sins. He rose the third day to assure us that the altar was filled with coals to purge and clean every single one of his people. Every single one who believes on him. Do you believe that what Jesus did, he did for you? Will you accept his cleansing and purpose to live in holiness? For God never cleanses a person without purpose. Yet he rarely orders his children. To war, And so the Lord poses a question there in verse 8, and I heard a voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I, send me. Here God permits Isaiah to volunteer, quote unquote, for the ministry God has for him. For the response of Isaiah is not uh, in doubt. It's a foregone conclusion. Here am I, send me. God had predestined Isaiah for this work. But in the working out of his plan, he allows Isaiah to propose himself for the ministry of prophecy. Isaiah will be God's lawyer, his prosecuting attorney, as God sues Israel for breaking his covenant with them. Isaiah is brought to the place where he recognizes that he will be God's spokesman again. And yet, that duty is going to be rather somber. Verse 9, and he said, Go and tell this people, Hear ye indeed, and understand not. See ye indeed, and perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat. Make their ears heavy. Shut their eyes, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and be converted, and be healed. What is... Surprising about this verse is not that it is, was true of Judah, not that it was true in the day of Isaiah, but that our Lord Jesus keeps using this verse to, re- to refer to his own people in his own day. For Isaiah now becomes an example of our Savior, having received the purity, purification of the Savior. For purity welcomes the fire of God to purge sin The thought of that burning coal from the holy altar in the hands of the burning one may seem intimidating. Imagining it touching our lips might seem painful. And make no mistake. The removal of sin sometimes feels painful. It is uncomfortable to us to stop sinning, because it's all we've ever known. It's uncomfortable for us to break the habits. It's difficult for us to break the habits of a life. And yet, that pain I liken to a limb that has fallen asleep, that begins to awaken. For those of you who have slept on your arm wrong and feel the numbness of it falling asleep, you know that what's going to come when you move and roll over or do whatever is that the sharp pins and needles are going to feel bad. But it is a good thing to restore that feeling. And we would rightly fear the result if we failed to do so. For that pain signals that life is returning to the body. And I would say so it is in the soul. That the pain of sin's removal signals the return of life. And whatever the perceived cost, the reward of life is worth the price especially when the price is the ephemeral cost of sin. Something that we should uh, easily and readily give up. The Lord's commission of Isaiah speaks to all his people of the foundation for our identity and meeting. We approach the Lord hearing his word of ministry. We are purified by God, through Christ, to do something. God has something for us to do in his global work and plan of redemption. And oftentimes it can seem rather discouraging. We read verses 9 and 10 and hear them in the days of Isaiah. We hear them in the days of our Savior and we think to ourselves, it must be that we are similarly focused. We did live in days where people do not see with their eyes, nor hear with their ears, though it be placard before them and spoken in, from a bullhorn the truth of the gospel. They do not see, they do not hear, and their hearts are not converted. And we can grow discouraged. We can ask ourselves if God indeed has commissioned us, but let us remember the example of both our Lord and Isaiah that many will not understand or hear and be converted. And that does not invalidate what God is doing through our lives. For results are not as important as faithfulness. The results are what God is doing, what oftentimes we cannot see. What we do matters because the Lord has set our mission and our work in his everlasting work. His purpose, which he has ordained, the end from the beginning in which we participate, is meaningful because he uses us in that permanent everlasting plan. Our work lasts forever because his work lasts forever, and we are a part of that. Let us pray together. Let the, fear of holiness, let the fear of holiness not cause us to avoid your presence, O Lord of hosts. Remind us of the life-threatening work of sin and our need of purity. Show us the majesty of your plan and our purpose in it that we may live with meaning all our days. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.